Grace and peace to you, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, here we are, another beautiful Sunday morning. Um, good to be in the house of the Lord. We're, um, if you looked at your e-blast and you saw the, the scripture, or even just came in early and, and was looking through um, as to what we're preaching on today, um, you'll know that it's um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I had uh, somebody come up uh, this morning and they went, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, huh? Uh, yeah, that should be interesting. Well, I hope it is. Um, we'll see. We're in uh, Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 20, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I'll not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him. Suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Pastor Tim Russell used to tell a story when he was younger that he said he wasn't very good at math. And I called him this week and asked him if I could share this story, and he said I could. In general, he said he preferred English and social studies because you could always get partial credit for your answer. But in math, it was either right or wrong. Until the teachers introduced word problems. At last, here's something that made sense to him, real-life scenarios. He said, I've got this. So he looked at the first question. If a car leaves Greensboro heading east on I-40 doing 60 miles an hour, at the same time that a car leaves Wilmington heading west doing 70 miles an hour, and the two cities are 200 miles apart, where will the two cars meet? Tim said the answer, of course, is Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and says he can't believe he got that one wrong. Today's scripture passage is a math problem. More precisely, it's a word problem. And the problem for Abraham was that only God knew the answer to the problem. So Abraham keeps trying to guess at what the answer might be. Is it 50? Is it 45, 40, something less? 
Abraham doesn't know, but he's trying to figure out the mind of God. The word problem is not some hypothetical scenario, however. It's very real. A town that Abraham knows and loves is on the precipice of being destroyed by God. The town is the home of his nephew Lot, but the citizens have, been, have not been living right. God does not tell us what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, only that their sin is grave. Ezekiel the prophet, however, chimed in on the incident years later and says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Sodom and Gomorrah have taken on somewhat legendary roles in the Bible because of their wickedness and because of their destruction. But that's not why we're looking at the story today. Remember, we're looking at prayers in the Bible. And this chapter describes the very first time someone interceded to, to God on behalf of someone else in the entire Bible. Think about it. How many prayers have been prayed in the last 5,000 years that sound something like this? Lord, please help my daddy, my mommy, my grandma, my son, my best friend, my teacher, my church, my country, that little girl I heard about on the news, and so on. I probably pray a dozen such prayers before noon each day. Prayers that are made to God asking him to do something on behalf of someone else. Those prayers have been prayed Billions of times. And this right here is where that practice began, with Abraham pleading for Sodom. I'm going to tell you, the story doesn't turn out so well, but if you'll hang on till the end, I'll give you some hope, okay? I talked about this when I came back from Africa, but I'm just curious, I'm just taking a little poll here. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country where you got to haggle for prices in the local market? Oh, gosh, we got world travelers all over the place here. Okay, thanks. Okay, in America, you know that if you see a price tag that says $19.95, you're going to pay $19.95 plus tax, right? But if you go to Mexico or Haiti or Sierra Leone, the price is somewhat negotiable. The merchants are willing to haggle over the price. And if you're good enough at this game, which I'm definitely not, you might only pay $10 for something instead of $20. You can get some good deals if you're good at bargaining. But can you imagine being bold enough to bargain with God? When you're bargaining with a merchant, you hold the money, and he or she holds the merchandise. You each have something that the other person wants, so you have some bargaining power. But when it comes to God, I mean, he holds everything, right? Who could imagine bargaining with the God of the universe? And yet, surprisingly, the very first instance of intercessory prayer found in the Bible shows Abraham bargaining with God. What Abraham does here seems weird to me. I, I mean, this idea of bargaining with God doesn't sit so well with me. Oh, sure, I've done it plenty of times. You know, who hasn't prayed Lord, if you'll just get me out of this ticket, I promise I'll never speed again, right? And yet, I think of God as unflinching, as stable, that there are limitations, not on God, but on us. You can do this, but you can't do that. Here's the line, 
you shall not cross it, right? I believe in a merciful God who certainly forgives our indiscretions, but a God that can be bargained with? That seems weird. And yet, here we are. Now keep in mind, this is not the first time that God and Abraham have spoken to one another. God has already told Abraham to leave the land of Haran and go to the land of Canaan, where he will make his descendants, along with his wife Sarah, into a great nation so that the entire world will be blessed through them. Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike all claim Abraham as part of their heritage and origin story. He's kind of a big deal. But the other interesting thing here is that Sodom and Gomorrah have already seen God at work. Now, it's in one of those Old Testament chapters with a lot of names and places that are hard to pronounce, and it often puts, you know, uh, Americans to sleep. So you're forgiven for not being aware of this. But in Genesis chapter 14, right before this, the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah won a battle against some neighboring Canaanite towns. And afterward, the king of Sodom sat down with Abraham and a priest named Melchizedek to give thanks to God for the victory. So they know who God is. They're not ignorant. And yet, as we learned before, their sin is grave. So God says out loud that he's about to do something about Sodom, but first he's got to go down there and check it out for himself. Now, that brings up a thousand more questions that I don't have time to, to deal with this morning, so just stay with me here. Abraham jumps in in verse 23, and he says, um, excuse me, God, yeah, um, I don't mean to pry, but I couldn't help overhearing what you were saying just now, and I got to wondering, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I mean, what if there are like 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous living there? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, God. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Did you catch that? Are you kidding? Did Abraham just say to the Lord God Almighty, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Did he just question the morality of God to his face? Now, we often ask the question, how does a loving God send people to hell? Personally, I don't think he does. I think that's a choice that we make. But Abraham asked the opposite of that question. In effect, he's asking, how could a just God send people to hell? He appeals not to God's love, but to his justice. Abraham knows that God is fair and just. Perhaps the question then that we should be asking is not how could a loving God send people to hell, but rather how could a just God decide to save anybody? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, I still think there's hope. Hang in there. But I'm impressed with Abraham, honestly. I mean, he could have just asked God to save his nephew Lot and his family, but he didn't. He asked to save the whole town. And he doesn't do it because he, Abraham, is a person of great character. He does it on the basis of God's character. Come on. You can't destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And that really leads to the question of the day. Is the righteousness of the few enough to cover the unrighteousness of the many?
Is the righteousness of the few enough to cover the unrighteousness of the many? Abraham keeps speaking until he gets it down to 10. Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. But suppose only 10 righteous people are found there. The Lord replies, then I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. It gets kind of comical, right? I mean, Abraham, he starts at 50 and he continues to go, you know, through 45, 40, 30, 20, on down to 10. And then, and then he stops. He stops at 10. Why not ask God to spare the city for the sake of five? Why not ask God to spare the city for the sake of one? Why 10? We're all waiting for Abraham to say, God, you are an amazingly righteous and gracious God. Would you save Sodom for one righteous person? Instead, Abraham goes home at 10. So we're left hanging with that question. Could the righteousness of one, just one, save the unrighteousness of many? There have been instances where one person sacrificed themselves for the sake of others, even for the sake of strangers. The righteous act of one saved many regardless of the other's righteousness. For instance, there's a story of Arlen Williams. When Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into a frozen lake in the middle of a snowstorm, all but six passengers were killed. Some 20 minutes later, a helicopter arrived to rescue the survivors. And after getting one man to safety, the helicopter threw a life ring down to Arlen Williams, who immediately gave the passenger next to him the ring. When the helicopter came back, he did the same thing again, pushing the life ring to another person. And he did it again, and again, and again. And when the helicopter came back a final time, Arlen was dead. He'd used his last ounce of strength to save a complete stranger. Or there's this story from the 2011 Japanese tsunami. Takeshi Mayura and Miki Indu were two government risk management workers tasked with working, excuse me, warning and directing the public to safety. And when that 30-foot wave hit, both Takeshi and Mickey stuck to their posts and kept broadcasting, using their last words to direct townsfolk to higher and drier land. And this one from the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. As the director of security at Morgan Stanley, Richard Reskorla was a stickler for his building safety and he held twice yearly evacuation drills to get people out. When the attacks happened and the tower next to his was hit, Rescolar put his plan into action and calmly instructed people to leave right up until the moment that he himself was killed. Rescolar's actions were considered instrumental in successfully evacuating over 2,500 people. These are all heroic acts each one sacrificing themselves for people they didn't even know. Their righteous acts saved others regardless of the other people's righteousness or unrighteousness. But I don't believe any of those tragedies were a result of the community's sins. And the horrible things that happened were not God's punishment for their sins. I share those examples so you won't get confused. For God's will is far greater to save than it is to punish. In the end, Abraham didn't end up saving Sodom because there weren't 10 righteous people. In fact, there wasn't even one. Lot is only relatively righteous. 
Abraham went home knowing that he didn't have one totally righteous person living in that town. And as great as Abraham was, he wasn't able to save the city either. He knew he could have whittled God down to one. He knew it, but there wasn't one. Not in Sodom, not on this day. But it could have happened if only there was one truly righteous person. Only. Well, here comes the hope I've been telling you to wait for. Years later, God gave us that person in his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish, but instead have everlasting life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The righteousness of one can save us. The righteousness of Jesus did save us. Jesus is the only truly righteous person. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill what Abraham was asking of God in relation to Sodom. When you believe in Jesus, you enter into solidarity with him, and his righteousness becomes yours. Jesus says to Peter, he says, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you, so when, not if, but when you recover, I want you to lead the others. Jesus has prayed for Peter, and he can't be turned down because he's the one truly righteous person who saves the unrighteous through his righteousness. Peter understood this, and he wrote about it in a letter that we call 1 Peter. He said that Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you close to God. It's not about following a set of rules, sending up words as prayers. It's about recognizing the one that Peter points to. The one who fulfilled what Abraham could not. It's about having a real relationship with Christ. About recognizing how imperfect we are in our need for Christ, which should humble us. And yet all the while, knowing that Christ makes us perfect, which should give us confidence. Should give us assurance. Should give us boldness. It's about recognizing both those things at the exact same time. As Charles Wesley wrote in my favorite hymn ever, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Yes, you may approach God with your problems or anyone else's problems and know that because of the righteousness of one in Christ Jesus, that God will act, for he is eager to save you, me, and everybody else. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I, I want to share that hymn with you. It's, it's, like I say, it's my favorite in the whole book. Um, we're going to sing it instead of, uh, what, what was it, 467, Trust and Obey. We sang that last week during the um, Pick Your Favorite Hymn. So let's move to 363. It's called And Can It Be, and it's a testimony that Charles Wesley writes. And um, the reason we never sing it is because it's hard to sing. But listen to, listen to these words, okay? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who am to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? 
In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We're getting near the end of the hour. Let's sing verses 1, 4, and 5 of hymn 363. Okay, let's stand and sing 1, 4, and 5. And, and can it be that I should gain? Thank you. 